Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And today I'm having a conversation with a wonderful, brilliant lady who I'm very excited to have a thorough conversation about her article in the May 2020 Clinician's Brief on cystocentesis. So everybody, today we are going to dive into this conversation with Dr. Adesola Odenayo. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Becky. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, we are really glad to have you. So I'm going to get a little bit on your background here. So first of all, I understand you are at the University of Tennessee, right? I am. But you graduated from Oklahoma State. Yes, I did. 2005 graduate. Go Pokes. (laughs) Okay. And so how did that transition happen? How did you end up from the Midwest to pushing toward the South over by me? (laughs) Well, uh, probably just small life circumstances and needing to find a job. But also when I visited Knoxville, I fell in love with it. I had historically lived in like really small college towns. So this is the first place I've lived in that's like, you know, decent in size. So yeah, I've lived here for eight years and I love Knoxville a lot. So I always love to ask my guests when, you know, I first get to meet them, if you are in the majority of the profession, I especially when it comes to veterinarians, I think, who always wanted to be a vet or did that come about later in life and kind of how did your journey get you to where you are today? Yeah, it actually came about later in life for me. I always wanted to be a physician growing up and I didn't actually decide to be a veterinarian until I was probably about 15 or 16, so a little older than I think most other people. But my mom kind of started a poultry farm when I was about 12. And along that line, I got to like interact with veterinarians just through the course of like working on her farm and actually went to vet school to be a chicken vet, which I know nothing about chickens now, but that was my initial motivation. We need more chicken vets too. I mean, I feel like the chicken vets in America are like, oh man, come on, you should be over here. Well, you ended up in emergency and critical care. What point did you decide emergency was going to be your space? So at the end of vet school, I knew I wanted to do an internship because I just felt there was still so much to learn. So I applied for an internship we actually at Oklahoma State did not have an emergency department per se when I was a student. So it was completely new to me. But my first year as a veterinarian, I just kind of fell in love with it. I loved the fact that I got to see a lot of different things. And I could see something as simple as a dog with the itchy skin to a cat that's dying. So I really like the variety. I like the adrenaline and I decided to stick with that. It's a hard thing to leave, right? When you get into emergency and critical care, it's hard to get out of that (laughs) excitement and that drive for sure. So let's dive in here because the article that you wrote is on cystocentesis and just basically like best practices when it comes to this. And I was excited to dive into this topic. And I like to talk about topics that cover skills and that really talk about the best practices around skills that we do in practice that we may or may not feel really like confident about. Like maybe we're confident with the skill, but we don't know are we doing the best practices? Because some things become so quote unquote every day that they're not an area we like go and talk about. So I was really happy to have a conversation about things that I as a technician and then the veterinarians who I work with on these podcasts and creating great content 
thought that we really maybe can help people feel they're doing the very best that they can. So long introduction kind of in saying when we talk about cystocentesis in general, for me, I was getting excited to talk to you about this because this is an area we kind of go with the whole like first do no harm thing and let that kind of lead us. And so maybe we underutilize it a little bit, right? Because we can go get a free catch. We can just take them outside and we maybe follow up with that as secondary. And this, of course, has less likelihood for complications. So I kind of wanted to start it off with you telling me the best practices and when we go for the catch and when we go for the needle. Yeah, I actually do agree with you. For the most part, I still get free catch from most of my patients because Ultimately, it is a really easy procedure to do while getting free catch urine. It is not very stressful for the patient, especially kitty cats. And then when we don't necessarily have to do a procedure that may not be needed. So if at all possible, I usually try to get free catch sample. And I think that has also been a shift in in my mind, I would say over the last three to four years where I have seen just a little more complications associated with cystocin thesis. But along the same lines, I think cystosynthesis has its place. It is also a really simple, straightforward procedure that pretty much every professional can do, veterinarians and technicians included. And even though we will talk about some of the complications, I think those complications are few and far between, so not very common. So in my mind, the only time I strongly go for cystosynthesis will be when I need a sample for urine culture and sensitivity. So if I thought the animal had a urinary tract infection and it really needed a culture because I think the cystosynthesis is the only way to avoid contamination from the lower urinary tract. So I would proceed with doing that procedure if I wanted a urine culture. Otherwise, if that animal just needed a urinalysis, I wanted to send off a blaster test, I wanted to check a urine cortisol concentration, I just go ahead and have a free catch performed if possible. I mean, certainly there are also times where the animal is just not going to urinate, especially cats. And sometimes we just have to get a cysto. But as much as possible, I still try to go ahead and get a free catch unless I needed a sample for urine culture, then I proceed with the cysto. I really like the caveat, like, oh, and cats, like it's, with cats, it's kind of just easier to go uh, every and every time. But I mean, we all know that. And I'm always, I'm like picturing the like tiny little white fluffy dog who like looks at you like you're a monster behind them with a ladle and they're just like, what are you doing? You know? I don't go outside. I don't know what grass is. I know. It's a riot. And as a vet tech, you know that I have spent hours with that very dog, right? Or my favorite, the other one is when you're supposed to go free catch a sling dog. So you've got like... A ladle in the dock and all the right. things. But in you. Yeah, it may not be the most convenient for sure. <laughs> and I'm like, just put a needle in it. But to that point, okay, so there are times, especially culture and sensitivity, we know we want to do it and we want to do it right. So give me that rundown. Give me that 
expert overview on best practices when it comes to the actual procedure, palpation, needle size, angle, what do we do? All right. So I think ultimately each individual should develop their technique and try to figure out what works better for them. So these are just guidelines for what I have found to work for me over the years. So again, that's probably going to be a little bit of variation. But starting off, I think cats are probably my favorite species to perform a synthesis on. It is pretty much imperative for both cats and dogs that you have somebody to help restrain the animal. It is really uncommon that I will have to provide sedation to have this procedure done, which is why it's also one of my favorite procedures because you can get it done pretty quickly. But every so often you may have that old arthritic dog that's just like really painful when you have them on their back or you're stretching their legs. So in some cases, sedation may be needed. And I think in most cases, you can probably get away with some butophenol just to kind of take the edge off. But certainly having somebody to help hold would be helpful unless that animal was like completely under anesthesia or pretty heavily sedated. So in kitty cats, I can pretty much almost always get the sample if I can palpate the urinary bladder. So I usually will go blind. So uh, palpate the bladder, which I think it's pretty easy or at least easier to do in cats and dogs because the abdominal muscle is not just quite as developed. I prefer for cats to be lateral recumbency. Again, I just kind of find it easier that way. Um, Assistant kind of helps restrain that animal in lateral recumbency or cat in lateral recumbency, making sure the front and the back legs are kind of stretched. I personally encourage or like to have the sight prepared. So I would usually just take a little bit of hair off and then kind of scrub that area. And we can talk about that a little bit more. I never use anything bigger than a 22 gauge needle because it's just urine. So it's going to flow. You could actually even get away with a 25, but I think a 22 gauge needle works really well. So after preparing the site, I usually go in about 45 degrees angle to the skin. I usually try not to or discourage redirecting the needle once you're in the abdominal cavity. So if you don't get a sample, the first go through, just come out, replace your needle and try again. Dogs, I prefer to do them in dorsal recumbency, male or female. Female dogs, you just kind of want to go along the ventral midline. And in male dogs, you just want to go slightly lateral to the prepuce. There's a usually pretty obvious blood vessel, uh, the caudal superficial epigastric vein. So you want to make sure you don't hit that when you're going in. But the same principles for a cat would hold true. So if you can palpate the urinary bladder, just kind of stabilize it with one hand and going at about a 45 degree angle to the skin. Make sure you prep your site before you do it. Personally, I prefer to use the ultrasound in dogs. Again, it's a little harder to palpate and stabilize that bladder. So I think it's just way easier if you have access to an ultrasound to kind of actually see it before you insert your uh, needle in. And I think the last thing you said there was a perfect follow-up to my next question, because when do we go with ultrasound guided and when don't we? Yeah. And again, some of this may vary from individual to individual, but if you can palpate the bladder, I think it just makes for an easier experience for the pet and for you, the professional that's getting the sample, because you can actually see it with the ultrasound. So you know that, well, this animal has a really small bladder and probably not going to be able to get urine. It's going to save you the time of trying three or four times. And then obviously it's going to save that animal a couple of needle sticks too. So I would absolutely use an ultrasound if I could not palpate the urinary bladder, which 
will be true for many dogs. I mean, sometimes you can palpate it pretty well in dogs too and stabilize the bladder. More and more practices actually have ultrasound available because usually when I speak at conferences, it's just kind of like a fun question I like to ask because we use the ultrasound a lot on emergency to look for free fluid when we do a fast scan. So I feel like many more practitioners have ultrasound available and many more practitioners do a lot of amazing things when it comes to using the ultrasound for diagnostics. So they can tell that this animal has a splenic mass and liver mass. But I think sometimes we forget that it is a quick and easy tool to make our lives a little easier when it comes to cystosynthesis. I always say this and some people think I'm funny when I say it, but it's the absolute truth. Uh, I am probably the least qualified veterinarian when it comes to utilizing ultrasound. I'm not really very good at images. I couldn't really do a diagnostic ultrasound, but I can utilize it to look for free fluid and identify the bladder. And I feel like if I can do it, then absolutely anybody else can do it. So I think it just makes it a lot easier. I could totally second that. I am like, wait, I'm sorry. I don't know how to look at things like a pie slice. I cannot make my brain wrap around that concept. Like it has got to be a whooshing, gushing valve, (laughs) a big giant pocket of fluid or like a baby. (laughs) And then I'm like, I can see that. Hello. So I'm totally with you on that. And I think a lot of reasons might be why we hesitate sometimes to pick things like that up. When you wrote this piece, I was just interested in thinking to myself when you were writing about best practices and performing this, what were the aspects you felt you really wanted and were most important in conveying to your colleagues about this procedure? I think probably what we had in mind was to hopefully make it clear that this is actually a procedure that's pretty easy to do, especially for like young veterinary technicians just kind of starting out, young veterinarians starting out where maybe they haven't really had a lot of experience doing cystosynthesis. It is pretty easy to do, pretty accessible to the veterinary professional, and then hopefully trying to encourage more and more people to consider using the ultrasound, especially when you have it there. It really does make your life a lot easier. Yeah. And I really do love that just because I think sometimes we resist change. We think we don't have time. We make up a ton of reasons to kind of get outside of our comfort zone. One of my favorite things about this podcast is sort of that sense of community and confidence we can build by literally listening to our colleagues, reading their articles, and then, you know, listening to this additional content and saying, okay, I'm going to do this because it is best practices. And I feel confident because I'm listening to the best tell me the ways to do these and to do these well. And to feel good about the decision to perform this procedure as opposed to like, okay, well, should we just put him in a cage and wait for him to go outside and take several hours or the different things that we tend to do? I guess the flip side of that, right, is the reason we do tend to maybe go with resistance, which is contraindications. So I guess obviously we want to discuss those a little bit. Yeah, there's certainly a few. I would say I love urine. I'm definitely a big proponent of it. I'm always hampering on my students in training and interns in residence because we're really, really good at getting blood work, CBC chemistry, but we tend to forget getting urine and I feel like you can get a lot of information from it. So big proponent of getting urine, but 
there are just some times where you have to wait until it's more appropriate. One of the big things, especially on an emergency basis, will be any animal that is unstable. So I have certainly walked in when somebody was trying to get a cysto on an animal with respiratory distress, or maybe they had a low blood pressure. I would say that that's probably, you know, something that can wait until the animal is in a better state to either go on their side or go on their back. Usually with those animals, we just want to keep them in sternal recumbency as much as possible. Other probably more common contraindications will be the presence of uh, pyoderma or infection in the skin. That's something we don't really want to introduce into the abdominal cavity or the urinary tract if we don't have to. So if the animal has pyoderma, you probably want to have them go home, treat the skin, and come back if possible. Another consideration is actually, even though the cysto sample will be the most ideal for urine culture, but in human medicine, they just culture midstream samples from free catch. And that's something that one could consider when you have the circumstances where you just cannot get a cysto because the animal has a pyoderma. And some veterinary institutions, well, at least I know the University of Wisconsin, they do a lot of urine cultures and free catch samples. So you may also consider that if you can't get a cysto because the animal has a pyoderma, if you're concerned at all that they may possibly have neoplasia in the urinary system, like a TCC in the bladder, because one might run the risk of seeding the peritoneal cavity by inserting a needle into that plastic mass. So usually I would avoid that as much as possible. Pyometras would also be a good example because we know the uterus sits in between the urinary bladder and the colon. So one may accidentally, especially when you're doing this blind, potentially miss the bladder and go into the uterus and potentially cause perforation or rupture or seed the abdominal cavity with uh, infection and cause peritonitis. And then I would say lastly, an animal that has a bleeding disorder, they have changes in their PT or PTT or their platelet function. We just want to minimize the risk of bleeding in those animals. So I would wait on doing a cysto. And I guess if we maybe didn't know one of those situations were happening and we get into a space, there's complications. How do we recognize something that may have happened? That's a great question, Becky. I think thankfully, in many cases, it is immediately obvious, especially when it comes to laceration. So if one accidentally went into the uterus, in the case of a pyometra, usually there'll be evidence of purulent material back in the needle or in your syringe. One of the other common complications Applications that happens will be sometimes the operator would uh, either go past or go through the urinary bladder into one of the big vessels, like the cuddle vena cava or the aorta, and that can cause bleeding and sometimes laceration of those vessels. So anytime one gets blood back instead of urine, there might be a consideration that, oops, I may potentially have punctured through into the aorta or the vena cava. So in those cases, it is obvious because you can see that you have something other than urine in your syringe when you aspirate back. But in some cases, it may not be immediately obvious. Like if that animal now has a uroabdomen or they have peritonitis, sometimes it can take a day or two to see before the animal becomes clinical. One of the nice things about having and using an ultrasound for cystosynthesis is you can always go back and look and see if there's anything that's concerning. So after you get your sample, you go back and you just look in the area of the urinary bladder. Remember that, again, this is like something really simple to do. If I can do it, anybody can identify that, oh, 
oh, well, now there is free fluid around the urinary bladder. And there wasn't any free fluid before my sister. Oh, could this potentially be urine or blood? And, you know, there's steps one can take to kind of identify and try to walk towards what needs to be done with that animal. So I think generally it's pretty straightforward and easy to tell because, yeah, you are going to see something other than blood in your syringe. Or if you utilize the ultrasound, you can go back and look. But along the same lines, I should also say that these complications are really not very common. Many veterinary professionals do hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of cystocentheses every day. So the complications are usually pretty rare and uncommon. And when they do happen, they're usually self-limiting in most animals. So if you accidentally went into the aorta or the vena cava, usually the patients do fine and there's really no long-term effect. Every so often you do have more profound complications where that animal may need surgery, but those are also really rare and uncommon. We know that they're rare and uncommon, but why are they so present in our forefront, right? Like, I think we've all done a thousand sisters and thesis and probably not experienced complications. And yet every single time we do it, we're like, but what if, but what if? Again, I guess that brings me to the next thing that stands out to me, which is decompressive cystocentesis and our urinary obstructions. I just can't like remember in school being told it's like putting a needle to a balloon. And I think that people in the industry and in our professional colleagues are scared to do them sometimes. But then again, we know that there is some pretty solid evidence that they're beneficial. And I can only imagine if I felt like some of those cats I've palpated that I would want somebody to do something right away. So what are your thoughts on this and your advice for our practitioners? That's another great question. And I think we probably had the same teacher because I was taught the same thing all through vet school and actually through my training. I did two internships and a residency and I had the mindset that you absolutely did not perform a cystosynthesis on an animal that had an obstruction for the same reason. You're going to pop the urinary bladder and it causes a massive hemoabdomen. But then I got to to Tennessee. And one year, I think it was probably my first year, I was sitting in intern rounds that we usually have with our interns. We do it for about three months out of a year. And Dr. Joe Badgers, he is an internist, but his area of clinical and research interest is in nephrology and the urinary system. So he was talking about blocked cats that day. And he told the interns that, yeah, when you have a blocked cat come in, you should perform a cystosynthesis. It really makes it so much easier for you to unblock them. And I thought it was blasphemy. I was like, oh my God, why would you tell them this? So I got to talking to him after Brown. And, you know, he was like, yeah, I've done this for years. I've never had a problem. But interestingly, that same year, I went to IVEX and there were two, which is just the emergency conference, the International Emergency Conference. And there were two abstracts presented. So two different research projects done by two different institutions in the country. And they were specifically looking at decompressive cystosynthesis in blocked cats. And both the groups pretty much had the same results where they did an ultrasound in the cats before the cystosynthesis just to identify to see if they had any free fluid 
performed the cystosynthesis and then did an ultrasound after and then unblocked the cat. They're in the hospital for a few days and then sent them home. And obviously they kind of recorded any complications that they had in those cats. And in both groups, there were really no significant complication. So some of those cats had bladder sweat before the cystosynthesis, which again is fairly common in blocked cats. So they noted that and they noted probably about in each group, maybe one or two cats had a little more fluid after the cystosynthesis was performed, but no cat had like a massive uroabdomen. No cat needed to go to surgery or developed any complications. And one of those research abstracts have been published now in the journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care. So just kind of reading that gave me a little more confidence in going back home and utilizing this and the cats that absolutely need them. So I have done a few decompressive cystosynthesis thesis. And actually, I tend to do them more in dogs, to be honest with you, than cats. Generally, in those cases where it's just really hot to pass a urinary catheter, like you have a dog that has a ton of stones and you're trying to reach a pulse it. And like you said, Becky, it's really uncomfortable. I mean, some of those animals, the bladder is just like a rock. I know that performing the cystosynthesis does provide relief. And this is still subjective. We don't really know if it's really true. I mean, in my mind, it kind of makes sense. If you don't have a lot of back pressure from the bladder, then it will make it easier for that urinary catheter to pass if you're trying to pass a catheter. But to my knowledge, that hasn't really been shown scientifically yet via research. But I think subjectively, it does make it easier. Again, I don't routinely do it in every block. I think, generally speaking, we can get them unblocked without doing a decompressive cysto. But I have more confidence when I have to do it. I'm not as nervous as I used to be. And I think certainly I can't tell you that it's 100% risk-free. I think that's possibly a chance that you could get maybe a cat in 10,000 have that complication of rupturing their bladder. But I think it happens less frequently than what we used to think, which is good. You guys heard it from Dr. Adesola. When you're scared, listen to those words, feel some confidence, and bring them a little comfort to their bladder. For veterinarians with hectic schedules and high standards, the Clinician's Brief Algorithm Collection is a clinical tool that helps you confidently work up your cases. Confirm your next steps with succinct case management and differential diagnoses in an easy-to-follow format. To purchase your copy, visit cliniciansbrief.com backslash algorithms. All right, so it brings me over to our Keep It Brief segment, which, uh, you know, I always say no pressure, right? We never really keep anything brief around here. But I just kind of wanted to ask you about your most memorable cystocentesis because mine was sort of early in my career. And it was part of actually helping my doctor in diagnosing a lower urinary tract cancer presence because of doing this. And it just kind of always stuck with me and how important this was going to be going forward in identifying where certain things are happening within the system. So I just didn't know if you had a memorable one to share with us that just kind of sticks with you that you think of, you know, every time you're doing one. Yeah, I actually have two, <laughs> if that's okay. Yeah. Quickly. Well, I wanted to uh, just quickly talk about cats because cats 
can sometimes, and this is also really uncommon, but cats can sometimes get a vasovagal reaction after a cystosynthesis. We don't really know why it happens, but you do a cystosynthesis, it goes really well. And then five minutes later, the cat is like panting or tachypnic and hypotensive. And that actually happened to me this weekend on Saturday. We had a cat that came in that probably had feline idiopathic cystitis. He had been kind of straining to urinate and wasn't obstructed. We did a cysto and he became tachypnic. The good news is in all the cats that do this, at least based on what's been reported in literature, they all just need a little bit of time. So just put them in oxygen, maybe a fluid bolus if they're hypertensive and they all recover well. But I just thought it was like really interesting that I had this rare complication of cystosynthesis happen to me two days before the podcast. Yeah, I mean, sorry, but not sorry. Thanks for having that. But another case that's really memorable, which doesn't really have as much to do with the technique as it does with getting the urine sample. So it was a six-month-old dog, a really cute scruffy dog that presented for C seizures. He was just like an interesting age to have seizures because generally when dogs get idiopathic epilepsy, they tend to be a little older, like at least a year. So anyways, he came in and he saw a neurology service and he had an MRI. They didn't find anything. He had a CSF tap. And I was just looking through his record and I noticed that his pH was pretty low on his blood gas, which I just thought was odd. And there wasn't really good reason for that to happen. And then somehow... I remembered, I don't know how, but there is a condition that's been described in dogs where they have this congenital abnormality where they just don't metabolize or process proteins well. And typically those animals have a really, really low blood pH, but also really low urine pH. So we got a urine sample via system from this dog and we were able to make that diagnosis and he is doing great. I mean, just kind of getting that answer from his urine sample kind of completely changed his treatment plan and what would have had to be like supplemented or done with his diet. And um, I was just really impressed by how much information one can get from a urine sample. That was like a super Dr. House moment of you where you were like, let me just come in here and tell people about this. Well, I'm, again, not really sure how it happened. It was just like how a small piece of knowledge that was buried in the crevices of my brain just kind of came out of nowhere. So I was, yeah, a little shocked, but also really excited we could help that dog. That's the beauty of learning. And then that's the beauty of sharing, though, right? Because... Those are how you make ripples. And that's exactly why we have this podcast and we take this time. So thank you so much for doing that, for taking the time to write this article. Again, it is on cystocentesis in the May 2020 Clinician's Brief. Dr. Adesola, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a joy speaking with you. Thanks, Becky. I had a great time. I appreciate you being here and having me on. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinician's Brief, the podcast, is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.